Only a short while ago, I was in Israel, and I was seated on the Mount of Olives below the now closed-down Intercontinental Hotel in what is a part of Arab Jerusalem, the old part of Jerusalem across from Brook Kidron and up on the Mount of Olives. I'd stayed in that hotel in 1966 when I was first there, when that part of Jerusalem was a part of Jordan. And during Infatada, the rebellion of the Arabs, they have completely trashed all of the Arab side of old Jerusalem. Here are ancient stone buildings. There is no such thing that I know of. Maybe there are one or here there that I don't remember having seen as a painted building in Jerusalem. They are the natural quarried stone right out of the ground. But the young Arabs have taken these modern spray cans and have just printed graffiti as high as they can reach on every wall, every building, all over East Jerusalem. And then the Israeli soldiers have come along, and because a lot of it is obscenity, or it is PLO slogans, or death to the Jews, they have taken black spray cans and painted out what the young Arabs had painted on in red or blue or green. And the effect is just of uh, the trashiest neighborhood you can imagine. The east part of Jerusalem is basically deserted. There, here and there will be an army roadblock, uh, some Israeli army vehicles, and then just a few Arabs around, but by and large, it was just deserted. So when you go to the Mount of Olives, and you're right almost the pinnacle of the peak, and some ancient old gnarled olive trees in little stony yards with just trash and bottles and broken glass and graffiti walls, and here is the deserted hotel with its many colonnaded arches, and I walk down some steps where they're just a vantage point, like a viewpoint over which you can look at the old city and you can see the Dome of the Rock in the distance. And there were two or three little Arab boys up there and on down a couple of older people. And the boys had these long pictures that are a panoramic view of the city to try to sell to those few tourists who would venture over to that side. So as Charles Gross and my son Mark tried to keep them occupied, well, I just sort of slid down the steps a little bit out of sight, sat down, opened up my briefcase, pulled out my Bible and a little handheld dictating machine, and tried to give a sermon, which is to be mailed out to the entire mailing list, about the sufferings of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ from the vantage point of looking across at the city. Totally different now, of course. The wall built during the days of the Ottoman Turkish rule the Dome of the Rock, a structure put there over the Temple Mount long since the time of Christ. The only physical things that are really the same would be the visible outrock, the outcroppings of stone, perhaps some of the most ancient old cemeteries, and then just the physical topography and characteristics of the land itself. So far as the buildings are concerned, I doubt that there are any that stood during the time of Christ. But it did make it a great deal more poignant, and in one sense of the word, it makes it more poignant for me tonight, at this time of the Passover, to at least have reminisced once more of the comparatively short walk it is from the old city down to the bottom of Kidron, and to get the heights across and to be up there on what then was merely an outdoor garden of ancient old gnarled uh, olive trees, and to try to relive that scene in my mind. As we conduct this service tonight, I hope we will keep in mind people all around the world, in Israel itself, all over Europe, many people behind the Iron Curtain, in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, 
over in Holland and France, in England, in Spain, Central and South America. In fact, practically every nation on the face of the earth. I know that there are baptized brethren of the parent church, and so far as I'm concerned, there are brothers in spirit in Kuala Lumpur. There are hundreds of our brethren, CGI as well as the WCG, in the Philippines. And wherever as the world turns, 7, 7.30 p.m. on this night comes to them, there are probably more than 150,000 of us scattered around the world who are observing the Passover. So we're not doing this alone by any means, and scattered all across this country, of course, even now there are others who are gathering together to have the Passover. If you'll turn to the 13th chapter of the book of John, we'll begin in verse 1. Notice the language, now before the feast of the Passover. The feast of the Passover was to come about 17 to 24 hours later. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And as the Westcott and Hort and Thayer's Greek lexicon and other sources, including most of the commentaries and the diaglot, tell us, the next expression should read, during supper, while supper was ensuing. The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God, he arose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or, Lord, what do you think you're doing? You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. And Peter said, You will never wash my feet, because Christ was stooping to task work, acting out, as it were, a servant's job. And Jesus answered him, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He was being a little bit facetious. And Jesus said, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet. Interesting language that I made a little bit out of in the book called The Real Jesus, that obviously these people did not go around a month or two or three in between bathings. They had all bathed or washed that day, but because they walked about, as we know, with a different type, type of footgear than we use today, he said, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. Again, the double entendre because he meant they had bathed and they were clean physically, and then he turned a little bit of the meaning to mean that they were clean spiritually except for one of them. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and they must have been chuckling, they must have looked at each other in amazement, they must have made a few comments, they must have been a little embarrassed about it, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Do you know what I've done unto you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's no record here at all that they immediately said, Oh, well, may we borrow your towel and the basin, and turned around and immediately began to wash one another's feet. 
I do not know, really, I'm not even interested in all of the long-winded explanations of many of the Christian professing churches, the Protestant churches, as they are called, or the so-called universal church or the great Roman Catholic church, as to why they do not perform this ceremony, when the language is clearly understood by any third, fourth, or fifth grader in school, that Jesus set them an example and said, if I have done this, so should you do it. They didn't do it then, so the only opportunity was going to be one year from them, uh, then rather, at the memorial occasion. If I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And if we would refuse to wash one another's feet, we're pretending that we in fact are above any such behavior. We would not deign to do such a thing. We wouldn't stoop to it. And that's what he is saying here. So you see what the attitude is, perhaps, of those churches that reason some way or another to be able to get around this. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So we're going to be happy as we do this tonight. For some of us, it may be a first occasion. I won't embarrass anyone by asking for a show of hands. Uh, for me, I think it is my 38th or 9th, I forget. And then as a little boy, I attended many, many of them in Oregon in the 1930s and watched the adults washing one another's feet. And my parents would explain it to me. As a matter of fact, I don't remember when I didn't uh, partake of, in some way or another, the Passover ceremony because from my earliest recollections, my parents up in Eugene, Oregon in 1933, 4, 5, were observing this custom. Now, if we will file out, there will be someone to show the women who will be turning right at the end of the corridor and utilizing those smaller classroom buildings, and the men will use the large Bible study room, I should say classrooms, and the men will go to the larger room, and then we'll come back and be seated. You'll notice we're going to begin a two-part ceremony. And I really want to emphasize the first part of this ceremony for some reasons that I will not necessarily go into in great length, except to say that in the last couple of years, there has been a persistent teaching that has actually been approved and has been written in the official publications of the parent church, that in fact the broken bread of which we are to partake is not efficacious for our physical healing but is merely symbolic of God's mercy and God's love and is analogous to the church. Let's see what it says. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, even though there are many others in both Luke, the 22nd, and in Matthew 26. If you want to read Luke 22:19 or Matthew 26, 26, they are the parallel verses. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, Paul again repeats what John said in verse 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now that statement and the parallel statement in John the 13th chapter is precisely why we are here tonight. It is why my father and all of those early members of the church of which he was pastor in Eugene, Oregon, and before that in other little towns around Oregon and some of the Oregon Conference of the Church of God who observed 
the Passover, observed it on the date that we continue to observe it today, in spite of the fact that year after year there are certain amateur theologians who come along and decide that we should wait and observe it on the 15th, the same as the Jews do, or we should observe it on some different phase of the moon or some different date on the calendar. But again, the doctrine of this church is the doctrine of the Word of God, the Bible. And it says that Jesus instituted this ceremony of foot washing the bread and the wine on the same night in which he was betrayed. And we clearly read it was, quote, before the Passover when he knew that his hour had come. And when he had given thanks, he break it. Now, when you break bread, you either break bread that is very brittle, which causes it to break and to chip and to flake, or if it's more like a French loaf or pita bread that you find in the Middle East, you tend to tear it. In that sense of the word, it's a very violent act. It wasn't intended to show violence, but Jesus intended it to portray something. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, obviously, his body was there that was doing the breaking and the handing to the disciples, so he is saying it represents his body. Not, as the Roman Catholic Church says through its doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread literally becomes his body or the wine literally becomes his blood. It is merely a symbol. It is a representation of his body. Why did he break it? Why did he tear it? Why not have nice, neat little wafers stacked up there like most Protestants and Catholics do, and each person comes by and sticks out his tongue and receives a nice little wafer? But there is no breaking, no tearing, no rending of a whole loaf. Jesus did not have nice little cupcakes or little individual loaves, but a large common loaf, and he broke it. And then he said, take and eat, this is my body, and what did he say? which is broken for you. Now, if Christ's sacrifice commenced at the moment of his death and consisted only of the shedding of his life's blood, why did he have to suffer? Why did he go through all the suffering? And the suffering was not merely the beating that he took, because, as you well know, certain kinds of emotional and mental anguish can be more impossible to bear, more excruciating. I think of a family here in Tyler right now. Today, I believe, this afternoon, I just heard of it. A little three-year-old girl has disappeared from her own yard, some apartments right in South Tyler. Her mother and dad must be out of their minds while we are here observing a Passover. Mental anguish, mental torment, not knowing apprehension over a precious little child, the things that people are going through today in Kurdistan and northern and southern Iraq, massacres over there. I won't go into that in great detail. I'm just trying to make a point. Have you ever been rejected? Divorce is rejection. I don't care which one the two parties like to claim they're at fault. A divorce is two people's fault. It can certainly be more one than the other. We know that, but it can be Absolutely one of the most traumatic things in the world. I understand what it is to be rejected. To have someone you love very deeply say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I don't want to talk to you. I will not receive a call from you. 
If you experience rejection, there is nothing more lonely, nothing that grinds or eats on you more, perhaps, than someone in whom you had complete faith and confidence, someone whom you admired, loved, and respected, who now doesn't like you anymore. Literally, many people have become suicidal over rejection. The Bible says very clearly in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he was rejected and despised of men. Now, it's wonderful when people adore you. It's lovely to get the accolades. It's very nice on the one hand when I go around at a personal appearance campaign and people will come up and say, oh, I've always wanted to meet you. That feels good. But then when you get a letter that says, in rather uncomplimentary terms, that you are a false prophet and that you ought to go off somewhere and uh, jump in a well and not come up, that hurts. But when Jesus Christ, even from his early boyhood and teenage, was rejected of his own brothers and perhaps sisters, was rejected of his own race, was rejected of all the religious leaders, he was loved by the little people, we know in the feeding of the four and the five thousand, by disciples, and yet, on the last moment of his meal, as he was going through the implementation of this rite, this service, of the symbols of the Passover, he became very heavy. He began to tell them what he was going to go through. And he found they were down the table, a couple or three people, while John alone seemed to understand and to be very, very close to Jesus. And the others are beginning to argue because they were a group of would-be revolutionaries who expected that at any time Christ would mount a throne, would depose Herod, kick out the Romans. He would be the new Maccabean revolution, except an effective one, and he would assume the throne that was rightfully his. So they were already beginning to struggle over the spoils. They were sort of like some of the Iraqis in Lebanon and other places today, wondering who is going to be the political party to run the new Iraq once Saddam Hussein is gone. They did not have the faintest idea what Jesus was going through. So when he is trying to reach out to them, needing their help, needing them to understand, because what do you want worse at a time when you're going through terrible trauma, rejection, lonesomeness, or uh, a specter of terrible pain or suffering that's about to come upon you, than to have the people in whom you trust and the people you love next to you put an arm around your shoulders and give you support. Get a hold of your hand and look you in the eye and say, I know what you're going through and just try to give you some help and some support, not them. They didn't understand. They're over there arguing about who was going to be greatest in his kingdom. So Jesus not only suffered the terrible beating that he was to undergo that night, he suffered being despised and hated when there was no reason to despise him and every reason to love him. He suffered rejection of his own family and his own race, and ultimately, as he was up on the stake of his own disciples, whom he could see through the red haze of his beaten eyes, looking at him furtively and then slinking away in the dark. For a church to begin to teach that the sufferings of Christ are not important. For a church to begin to teach that we dare not, as we ministers pull out a little bottle of oil and we pour it over the head of a child and lay hands upon them and say, we claim in faith the stripes of Jesus Christ for his healing. And to say, no, no, you can't claim that because that's not promised anymore. Healing is merely a part of God's largesse. It's part of God's goodness. It's part of God's mercy. But by and large, when you take the bread, you should think about the church 
for a church to take merely an analogy, because, of course, we know that there are many statements in the New Testament that say the church is his body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the arms, the legs, the hands, the feet, and so on, the commonly and less commonly members of the body, and by analogy says the church is the body of Christ. But that's merely an analogy. This is not the church that was broken for the church. It is not the church that was inflicted with stripes. It is not the church that suffered. It is Christ in his physical, fleshly body. I want to bear down on that because major, fundamental values and truths and doctrines of God's word are being abandoned by those who should know better and have known better for 40 and 50 years and are becoming more and more like other, other Protestant churches. So Jesus, in a sort of a subdued, violent act, the tearing of the bread, broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. The beating of that body, the breaking of that body, is, as we will see in the concluding verses in a few moments, definitely efficacious for healing and the forgiveness of those sins which lead toward sickness and disease. You don't want to categorize it as a physical sin. Sin is a sin is a sin, but there are sins of lust, sins of covetousness, sins involving uh, the usage of different substances such as drugs or cigarettes or what have you that are going to cause disease. Only when someone repents of those sins will God then remove that disease, which is the forgiveness of sin. I think erroneously for many years the church began to talk about physical sin as opposed to spiritual sin. All sin is spiritual. All sin is against God and is the breaking of a spiritual tenet or a spiritual principle. But some sins of the appetite, a sin of an oversight, a sin of perhaps a mistake that involves an industrial or a domestic accident, such as leaving a child near an open window, that's a sin. It shouldn't be done. It's an oversight. It's carelessness, and terrible problems can result. No, we can go direct to God as ministers in faith or as lay members in our prayers for our children or for ourselves and claim the broken body of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice which God will apply and will look at that body and apply it for the forgiveness of sin and for our physical healing. Well, it's time now to break the bread, and if you will, I'll ask all of you to bow your heads with me, and we'll ask God's blessing on it. Our eternal God, our Father in heaven, as we ask you to look down upon this part of your assembly here in Tyler, Texas, on this evening of thunderstorms in this spring month of the year, we ask you to help us think back to that time almost 2,000 years ago now, when Jesus Christ of Nazareth was instituting these symbols, knowing that only hours from that moment, his beautiful and flawless and sinless physical body was going to be subjected to torture and torment, to thuggery and brutality, to beatings, to being spit upon, to having people slap him and hit him with their fists, and eventually to beat him within an inch of his life with a cat of nine tails, to jam a cruel crown of mockery made of thorns down onto his head, ripping and tearing at his scalp, and to just mutilate in that sense without dismemberment, but to lacerate his perfectly formed human physical body 
very God in the flesh. And we, as your children, look to the fact that Jesus endured that terrible disfigurement and that suffering for a very great purpose and a very great reason. That this is a two-part sacrifice and that the sufferings of your son Jesus Christ are tremendously important and that we should never treat it lightly, that if we really understood it to the depth that we should and we had the degree of faith we should, we know there will be miraculous healings taking place among your people today. I, as a father of two deaf children, all of us with loved ones who have afflictions and debilities, diseases and problems, we think of many of our own members, a number who cannot be here tonight. We think of those who are bedridden and who are terribly ill. Many people with terminal diseases who desperately need your healing. The tear-stained letters that come to us that we read in our Friday morning prayer breakfast that call out for relief from prison or from drugs or from rape or every kind of disease that is known and cataloged in medical science and how badly in this degenerate age we need your healing power. So, Father, as we break and partake of this bread, we ask you to bless it for that purpose. Help us to renew our faith in the body that was broken for us of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we ask this blessing in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Verse 25, we read, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. A memorial like Memorial Day or Veterans Day or President's Day or any other day, like a birthday or an anniversary, is an annual occasion, not a weekly occasion, not every morning, pre-dawn, not quarterly, as some churches choose, but as a memorial. And we do this in remembrance of the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. The statement, as oft as you drink it, is not intended to say whenever you get ready to or at your leisure or whenever you decide to, but it means each time you do it merely. And since it is a memorial, obviously you do it on that annual occasion. I'll go ahead and complete this because it gives the entire sense of the two-part ceremony. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily... Now, all of us are unworthy because we could never earn the worthiness or the spiritual credentials to say we are clean, we are pure, uh, there is no more sin abiding within us, we never make mistakes, and therefore we are perfectly capable and able of taking the symbols of Christ's blood and broken body. I doubt if there's ever been a person in God's church who has taken the Passover feeling that they are as good as they ought to be. And many people have read this scripture and felt, I don't think I ought to take it this year because I'm having this or that or the other problem. We'll go on to see in the context what he really means. It is not a matter of your spiritual status or your credentials. We need to come to the place to see how badly we need these symbols and how desperately we need Christ's forgiveness, not say how little we need it and how good we are. But he said, if we do it unworthily, we shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And what does he find when he examines himself? Probably, just like spring house cleaning, some dirt. 
But when you examine and you look deeply inside, you're then supposed to get rid of that dirt and to ask God to cleanse it. As David prayed, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any evil thing in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. Examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, even after he has found some flaws and some problems and some things he needs to overcome, and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation or judgment, not damnation, but condemnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You and I both know there is no way you could diagram an English sentence on a blackboard and come up with that meaning, the church. The church was not broken for us, but the physical body of Jesus Christ was. For this cause, because they were not discerning the Lord's body in the taking of those symbols. For this cause, many are weak and sickly. They were weak and sickly, had sicknesses, diseases, debilities. And many are dead, as it should read. Many have died. For what cause? For not discerning the Lord's body. That has nothing to do with the church. The church is not mentioned in this context. It is a part of the ceremony of the broken body of Christ represented by this bread of which we have just partaken. For the cause they were not discerning the Lord's body. Isn't it absolutely unbelievable that a large, powerful, wealthy church that represents my father's life's work could put in its official publications that this bread of which we just partook represents the church. Some things are awfully hard for me to understand. Thank God that God has somehow allowed us to have the courage to just stick tight and hang in there and remain steadfast to the truth and the faith of God that was once delivered and to be determined we shall never change because we don't have the authority to change what Christ himself laid down. This is Jesus Christ laying this down. He set this pattern. He gave these representations, the symbolism, and we're going to do it his way when he said to do it in the manner that he said to do it, and with the understanding that he gave. So he said, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned of the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait one on another. And this is another part of the context, because some of them were turning this into a banquet. If any man hunger, let him eat at home that you come not together under condemnation, and the rest I will set in order when I come. I wanted to read the entire context, but we can see very clearly how the Apostle Paul was saying that already in that day and age, before 61 A.D., some of these large Gentile churches in this huge city of about a half a million people up in Corinth, where there was a large church, perhaps four, 450, 500 people, who were converted, most of them Greeks, maybe a handful of Jews, that had continued to observe the Passover on the 14th of Nisan, as we're doing tonight, had already begun to turn it into a banquet. In just a generation or so, they'd slipped and it'd become, it had become something less than what it should be. So you can see how very quickly, in the space of maybe 25, 30, 40 years, a church organization can begin to turn and can begin to corrupt the original purity of what Jesus Christ instituted. 
back to the verse then that I wanted to get. When he said, after the same manner, in verse 25, he took the cup, and when he had supped, said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you'll now bow your heads, we'll ask God's blessing on the wine. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we come to you in and through the name of Jesus Christ, who is seated at your right hand. In the splendor of the universe, we do not know where, but we know that in and through that powerful name we can establish our own high-tech uplink to your throne, that in and through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because of his fabulous, perfect, and flawless life and character, and because of that incredibly selfless sacrifice on the part of you, God our Father, being willing to give up your only begotten Son, and on the part of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was willing to lay down his life, that we can have access, that we can establish a contact, that we dare to approach your throne, though we have no credentials of our own to present before you, no goodness, because as you tell us in your word, surely every man, even in his best state, is altogether vanity. And as David prayed, I am not a man, but a worm. And so if we must crawl in your sight, which is fitting, because none of us are fit to stand up and walk and raise our heads and look you in the face, for no man can look on our God and live, we come to you at this moment with these little cups of wine that represent the blood that was dripping out of hundreds of wounds and out of a great spear wound eventually, and that poured from the body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth there on Golgotha so many years ago. We ask you to bless this wine, Father in heaven, to the purpose for which you intended, that each of us soberly, with a sense of awe, with a sense of fear, and yet with a sense of faith and thanksgiving, will partake of this little sip of wine to renew once again our absolute, lifelong commitment to you as your children and the acceptance of the shed blood of our Savior Jesus Christ to blot out our own wretchedness, our humanity, our appetites, our sins, our shortcomings, our faults, our lusts, the wrong things we say and do, our jealousies and animosities, our hatreds and selfishnesses, that we ask you, Father in heaven, to cleanse us, to help us, in one sense of the word, as this spring begins to bud forth and the new year, at least the sacred year, begins, that we recognize this as our new beginning every year, that we spiritually are able to turn over a new leaf. So we ask your blessing on this wine as we partake of it, and thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. In Matthew 26, 26, I always like to comment on this because when I was in the Navy, and even before, I always loved to sing. And I remember going toward Korea with the phosphorescence of the beautiful Pacific. We'd get out on a gun tub below the 5-inch 38, about seven or eight of us. I had a ukulele I'd bought in Honolulu that was made of a half of a, a huge coconut shell. And somebody had a mandolin and somebody else had a guitar.
And I always used to go on liberty with fellows who loved to sing, and we would harmonize four-part, sing all the old songs, Shine on Harvest Moon, or whatever we knew. Those are the good parts of the Navy that I remember, but bad parts I have tended to forget. But I do remember those wonderful evenings and the camaraderie of uh, young men in good voice who loved to just sit and sing. The other day when we were in Jerusalem, I went by in the morning in the breakfast area. Here were two tables of Jewish people, obviously large and extended families, and they were sitting there singing at the top of their lungs at the breakfast table, something you will never find happening in the United States. And I'm sure it was on Shabbat, as I recall, and they were probably religious songs, but they'd simply come to the restaurant, were having their kosher breakfast, and were singing, and it was just quite a gala occasion. You read here that Jesus Christ sung an hymn. It says, and when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Well, I was on the Mount of Olives just the other day, and so was Charlie out here and uh, my son Mark. That means to me it couldn't have been the first time they ever sang. So I like to think of their travels up to the Syrophoenician sea coast, and when they were on the coast and perhaps swimming in the surf and enjoying afterward a couple of songs that were well known by them. You know, originally God inspired the Psalms in the Bible, and it included the music, because David did not just compose words, he composed the words and the music on his heart, harp or his lute at the same time. Unfortunately, we have lost the music. No one has the faintest idea what kind of music it was, even. I wish we knew. Tonight, if you want to read something very inspiring, when you go home, just start on the 22nd chapter of the book of Psalms, and read the 22nd Psalm, and look at all the obvious references to the sufferings of Christ on the stake, including the statement that seemed to be sort of torn from his mouth when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is the Aramaic untranslated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you see that he says, they can tell or count all my bones. And the bulls of Bashan, they gape at me as if he could actually see Satan and demonic spirits laughing at his distress. And it flows right on into the beautiful 23rd Psalms they made us memorize as children. And when you think of the 23rd Psalm, and you think of Christ on the stake dying, and then when you read the words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, it becomes very, very clear that that too was a part of the thoughts of Christ on the stake as he died that evening. I doubt that the other men sang with the same feeling that Jesus did, but they all together sang in him after this occasion. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives, and we read how several times he went apart from them and cast himself down headlong on the ground and prayed that God could work it out some other way, and then very quickly would pray, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And would go back and find them asleep, and would say chidingly, Well, go ahead and sleep. First of all, he said, Couldn't you watch with me but one hour? No, they were tired. They had to get their sleep out. And then when he came back the third time, he was already seeing the torchlights coming up through the pathway, knowing that Judas, with all the armed guard and the Roman soldiers, were there with their sticks and spears to take him captive. And so he said, a little bit sarcastically, perhaps, to Peter and the others, sleep on and take your rest, because now the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
So I think of that Last Supper, very different from the painting you see in the, the famous art galleries, but uh, an upper room with these people who had been together for all these years, young men of camaraderie, and they were all singing, no doubt, quite lustily and enjoying the music, and Jesus singing with a completely different feeling in his heart than they had. I think we have a volunteer piano player this evening. So, uh, she would come up and assist me here for a moment. We're going to turn, if you would, to page number six. And I think we'll just sing the first and the last uh, lines of this, How Great Thou Art, because it is a rather long song, and let's not drag it too much. And we'll just all rise, please, and take your hymnals if you have one, and we'll sing How Great Thou Art, page number six. After which we'll be dismissed, and we'll see you all up at Mineola on uh, the holy day at about 10 a.m. That's Tuesday at 10 a.m. at the Mineola Center. Okay, okay we just want to start, all right? Are you ready? Give me a little forward there. Oh, Lord, my God, right there. Ready? Okay, ready? Okay. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy part throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Last verse. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, for joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. I'm going to do it off the cover. <laughs> 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 no. I can get my wife to do the record. <laughs>